Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to Cheaper Than Therapy, a podcast that journeys into conversations that demystify, destigmatize, and desensitize what goes on both inside the therapy room and in daily life. I'm Vanessa Bennett. And I'm Danae Logan. And we are seekers, soul sisters, and holders of sacred space. Every week, we sit down for soul-provoking conversations with fellow seekers, thought leaders, change makers, and even real people during live coaching sessions as they navigate the hard work it takes to be a human. This is Cheaper Than Therapy. Hello, everyone. We are coming to you from the car on the way to our second annual, because now we can say annual, from self-abandonment to inner belonging retreat. So grateful that you're here listening. And uh, we apologize if the audio is annoying. It's because we're in the car and I'm holding a teeny tiny little microphone in my fingers right now. <laughs> if only if only you could have a visual. Um, I also have been dealing with a cold because, you know, toddlers are dirty little germ buckets um, <laughs> that has turned into a sinus infection. So I also apologize for the fact that I probably sound like I'm underwater. At least that's what it sounds like in my own head. And I will be sniffling throughout. <laughs> Those are all my, my precursors to the conversation. Yeah, I feel like I'm already coming at this with like just feeling, you know, because my mic had been shoddy for about a month and there were so many episodes where I'm like, and I feel like people were commenting like, uh, Danae's sound is kind of crap. <laughs> so now I'm a little like, and it continues in the car, but we appreciate you life. bearing with us. It's life. Yes. So we're also passing this teeny tiny microphone back and forth. So if there's a <laughs> delay or a pause when one of us goes to speak, that's why. Um, we've already been in the car for, I don't know, an hour and a half and we've already cried and talked lots of things. Um, but we started getting into another conversation and we hit pause because I was like, we should just record this. Um, because as all of you know, who listen to us, some of the best episodes, I think personally, in my opinion, um, are the ones when Danae and I are just, especially in the car, because this is for anybody who's newer listening to Cheaper Than Therapy, this was really the catalyst for us actually to create this podcast because Danae and I went to grad school together and our grad school was like almost a two hour drive from LA. And so we used to every single month be in the car together and we would be having these like, you know, conversations and we were obviously in school. So we were learning all these different things. And, um, we thought, I mean, maybe we just think our conversations are riveting, but maybe other people, <laughs> riveting to us. maybe other people will agree. So, um, this is why we're also doing it in the car because there's something sentimental to it. Anyway, uh, digression. So, Let's pause and rewind. So what we started talking about, we, we've had a long conversation already about ah, so many things, <laughs> women's roles, motherhood, motherhood, patriarchy, partnerships, you know, the things we like to talk Small about. Things. <laughs> the things. Small problems. <laughs> the things we're always talking about. Um, but we, a couple of weeks ago, wanted to get on and have a conversation specifically around interdependence because both of us feel like it's a word that more recently 
is getting thrown around a lot. Um, Y'all know that I have been standing up on my soapbox for through two and a half, three years now saying, y'all, we're all fucking codependent, like codependency. And I got so much pushback in the like wellness community. And I feel like so many people were like, no, no, no. And now all of a sudden people are just throwing around codependency and interdependence. And I'm like, well, thank you for finally getting on the fucking bus. But also that's not actually what interdependence means. So, um, (laughs) happy on board, but that's actually not what we're talking about in the slightest. (laughs) Not to sound a little preachy or anything, but, uh, anyway, so we would just, we just wanted to riff on this a little bit. So I do want to start by go by rewinding a little bit. I think this is a good way to start it. Tell me if you think I'm wrong today, but like this, the conversation we were having around needs, I do think is a good way to start because even I sometimes have a hard time because I live in this society, right? I have a hard time articulating to clients, to myself, to my partner, this idea of needs, right? So the conversation started by me saying, well, we were talking about your ex and how he could never be a selfish person, right? Because it's just not how he was raised. It's not his life. It's not who he is. And I was saying very similar to me because we know that him and I are, him and I are the same person. Um, I could never be selfish, right? Like even if I tried and I was saying that I talk a lot in my classes, but also with clients about how similar to somebody who, again, me, um, has a hard time speaking up, has a hard time asking for things, has a hard time communicating hurt feelings, has a hard time, you know, expressing things, um, definitely errs on the side of like sweep it under the rug. It's no big deal. Uh, don't rock the boat, make sure everything is copacetic. Right. And so when I have conversations around this in the, in the kind of codependency landscape, I've had a lot of people say like, but how do I know? How do I know what I can ask for? How do I know what I'm allowed to speak up about, what I'm allowed to say I need in a relationship? And like, how do I know I'm not being too much is really what it comes down to a lot, right? And boy, do I know that feeling well. And my kind of quick response is a lot of times like, if you are somebody who errs on the side of like what I just listed out, say everything, at least in the beginning when you're first stumbling and figuring it out. Because again, guaranteed, you're never going to be able to be selfish. You're not going to be too much. Like that might be a fear of yours, but if you are truly somebody who has spent a lifetime not speaking up, just start trying your best to speak up about everything. And I know that almost sounds kind of ridiculous, but the point is, is like, you can't, I don't want to say break a habit that maybe minimizes it, but it's like, you're already overthinking what you're going to say or not say to the point of not speaking so much that a little bit, it's like throwing yourself into the deep end. And I have found this to be helpful in my own work too, is it's like, I have to just fucking say everything or I'll say nothing. And even in my saying everything, I'm still not saying that much. (laughs) Anyway, keep going. Well, what I have come to understand and here's the thing about what a patriarchal society does to us. A patriarchal society, from my understanding of what that means, big picture, you know, patriarchal, paternal, masculine, right? And it's masculine from a wounded space. And that's important to say, right? The way that we've been operating is more wounded, is very externally focused, right? Feminine energy, which would be... um, not what our society is based upon. It's not a matriarchal culture that we live on is more internally focused, just like, you know, anatom or yeah, <laughs> anatomically, I'm like, is that the correct word? Anatomically is anatomically, the masculine male would be external, external right? Um, feminine is internal, right? And so, so much of what we are raised to be focused on is the external. Now, It's confusing a lot of times because in a very individualistic, um, I would say sometimes narcissistic, you know, like me and my family and mine society, it feels like um, what we're, when we're talking about interdependence, what we're sort of saying is like, we should continue this thing of like self-focused and we don't care about the collective and we don't care about like connection and other people's needs. It's not that. It's that thing that like, if I'm not giving from 
what I actually have to give. If I'm not actually offering from a full cup or an authentic desire within me, it's the same way that we talk about people pleasing as being manipulative and kind of selfish because it's not actually about you giving to that other person. It's about you. It's about you needing love, needing attachment, attempting to maintain that attachment by putting on a false persona for that person, right? So you're sort of tap dancing for safety. You're attempting to maintain an attachment, um, love with another person, but it's not actually about you seeing them, right? And so I'm saying all that to say in the context of what you're saying about needs, I think we have so been raised to think it should be like the external experience of my needs, whereas I bring the focus to my needs first. And how does this authentically feel for me? Am I filling my cup enough first for me? Am I meeting my needs first so that I have something to give? It's that whole oxygen mask on yourself first so that you can authentically give to those around you. Whereas I think a lot of times what can be challenging for I I was going to say those who have more codependent tendencies, but I think all of us, yeah, is that we're so raised to think about how that's going to land for the other person that we, we don't know how to be present with what I'm actually feeling so that I cannot feel like that's going to maybe sever my attachment, my relationship with the other person. Do you know what I mean? So to give this like kind of tangible example, I was talking about like love languages, right? So The example I gave was, and I said, maybe it's a bad example because we're in a bit of a loop. (laughs) My partner and I. Not technically driving. Um, But, you know, so the example I was giving is like, okay, my partner's love language is words of affirmation, right? And that's not my love language. My love language tends to be more acts of service. Like I do for you to show that I love you. Um, And that doesn't usually land for him. Usually it's like, I need to hear it, right? What I was saying is... So it's important to me that my partner feel loved. Like I love him. So I want him to feel loved. Right. And if what I'm doing naturally, authentically doesn't fill that up for him, but I know that just simply, let's say stopping and saying like, Hey, I think you're really sexy. Like, you know, thank you for taking care of yourself. And like, thank you for showing up in the way that you show up for our family. Like whatever, like put the words, you know, put the words to it. If I know that that's going to make him feel loved, it doesn't feel like that much skin off my back, teeth, what's that cut, what's that say? Um, <laughs> to, to love him in the way that he likes to be loved because I want him to feel loved, right? Now, Danae's, your response to that was like, um, you know, but does that come authentically for you? And I'm like, no, not at all, actually. Like, it actually is it's very uncomfortable for me to, to do words. Like it's just not, and I'm like that by the way, that isn't my partner. Like I don't give words to anybody other than my kid. Actually, I find it to be very easy with her, but I have a hard time with my friends. We talked about this. You do do that, but you don't do it to that person. You do it about them. I do that about, I do it secondarily. Yeah. I can talk about somebody and how much I love them and how amazing they are, but to their face, it's really hard for me. It's an intimacy thing, which, go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> which we could, we could talk about. Um, but so, Anyway, going back to the needs thing, it was like, okay, so, but if, if my partner has a need to hear verbally the ways in which they're amazing and that makes them feel loved and I show them the way they're amazing by showing them, like, is, isn't that me meeting a need for them? And is that really bad? Is that a bad thing? Like I am doing something that doesn't quote unquote feel authentic for me, but I'm doing it because I want this person to feel loved. I guess like, first of all, I, it's never a bad thing unless I am doing it from a space of I have to do this. And if I don't, that there will be a consequence or this person will be resentful. And what I end up seeing so often, I think in couples is whatever my love language is, whatever the quote need is that I have from this other person, I'm in the space of resentment because this person is not meeting my needs from an authentic desire within them. And what I find is that that is where it starts to become a continuous loop of that need becomes like a bucket with a hole in the bottom that is never full for that person because there's nothing to cork it. And the cork is something that we have to do for ourselves. We have to say for ourselves, why is this a need that I have so strongly, Why right? do I need this person to verbalize, as an example, 
Or from on the flip side of that, why do I need this person to do things for me to make me feel seen and loved? Yeah. Like, I think it's not at all that it's like a bad thing to have that. And you know me, like I am very like much a proponent. Like I want us to switch out the need with desire because I think so often, like I have a desire to have this person do acts of service for me. If there were no person here, I would do my acts of service and I wouldn't feel resentment about the fact that there's nobody here doing that. But because that though, I might feel sad that I don't have a partner and that like my life would be easier and somebody might be doing this stuff for me. Yeah. Nobody ever died from feeling sad. And it's a feeling and we can feel feelings and they pass. But I think so often we feel entitled and, you know, I bring it back to a sense of entitlement that comes in when I have a partner, I feel entitled to having to not feel sad. I shouldn't have to feel sad. You're here. That's your job. Your job is to meet this need that I have. And it's not technically their job. And when we get into the space of this is your job and I feel entitled to you meeting this need, what I find ends up happening is we're not loving one another very well. We're keeping score of how our needs are or not getting met, right? We're feeling like there is, you know, we're keeping score. We're shortchanged. We're like in the space of demanding. And then we get so far from loving that it's like, I don't know. It's like we're we're not allies anymore. We're adversaries, like fighting for who's like getting their needs met or not when it's like, that is not the art of loving. That is not me doing these things because I want to show love for this person anymore. It's doing it because if I don't do it, I know I'm going to hear about it and I don't want to hear about it. And that's like, to me, that's where the exhaustion starts to kick in, you know? So to take it out of like the love languages, I was saying like, okay, an example would be, um, you know, my, like half jokingly, one of my love languages is food. I'm a Taurus. I like good food. I like good food often. I like to be fed. I do not like to be hungry. She's a neater, folks. <laughs> I do not like to be hungry. It is my least favorite feeling on the planet. I'll feel sad. You're I'll feel sad all day. Sadness, bring it on. Loneliness, bring it on. Hunger, no. <laughs> not okay. That is a feeling I don't want to feel. And that it will kill me, by the way. <laughs> that feeling will kill me. Um, but so because John knows this about me, you know, like if he's out and about and he knows that like bringing me home lunch will make me feel good. Like he himself might not be hungry, but he knows it'll make me feel happy or feel loved. And so he will stop and bring me lunch. And you said, yeah, but the difference in that is that he is authentically doing something for you because he wants you to feel loved. Like he's doing it from a place of not like, oh, I have to get her lunch. It's I want to get her lunch because I want her to feel happy and loved. Yeah. And I feel like what ends up happening so often is the codependent cycle that comes in is you don't get me lunch and that would make me feel loved. And so I feel resentment about the fact that you're not getting me lunch. So that person might get lunch, but the day that they don't get lunch, you start to feel shortchanged. You start to feel unseen. You start to feel irritated and angry. And this is something that I am entitled to because you're my partner and it's your job to make me feel loved by getting me lunch. Right. And that's what I feel like ends up happening where it's not about this person doing something loving for me anymore and me just feeling like, oh, my God, I'm so grateful to have this beautiful man in my life who thinks of me and loves me. I feel entitled to this. That's your job. You're my partner. Where That's just not true. Like if you didn't have a partner in your life, you would figure out how to feed yourself because you're a grown ass woman, you know? Yeah. I mean... I guess this conversation too is coming off of the heels of just in general feeling like very overwhelmed, right? Like realizing, coming back again, I guess, to this idea that, I mean, shit, it's our lifelong work, but what is it? Oh, I don't even know how to articulate this. Um, coming off the heels, I guess, of just this realization that I am still stuck at almost 40 years old in a pattern of trying to be all the things for all the people and realizing, I mean, logically, I know that that's not feasible. Like when my brain is on and it's working, I know that that's ridiculous. And I know that it's the thing that I have to work on, but it is just, it, it becomes so much more prevalent, I guess, first of all, with children. Because by nature of how children are, you need to keep them alive. They have a lot of needs. <laughs> and so if you are somebody who is always trying to 
be the best and prove your worthiness through being as good as possible, you know, children are going to fucking activate that because you are constantly doing, 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 doing just because it's what parenting is. Um, you know, and I, I will say, you know, God bless Sean. He's constantly like, you are a really good mom. Like you don't have to try so hard. <laughs> like even when you're not trying, you're, you're still like a good parent. And like you're still a good parent, you know, like yeah. you don't have to try so hard. Yeah. Um, but I don't know. I don't even know where that was going, but that was just kind of what the original conversation, I suppose, why, why this needs conversation was happening. Yeah. I think, you know, what we have realized, and I think so much of how we've started to step back and look at this whole conversation around interdependence. Um, and what this means is that this is just so alive in the ways that I believe our society is really having a reckoning with patriarchy and with what is not working anymore. And whether it's this whole conversation that's been alive around that book and that documentary, Fair Play, and that, um, you know, there's a lot of things that have changed with the modern feminist movement in terms of what women are doing and carrying, but what hasn't changed is the emotional load and the, um, the tangible things within a household that women are, you know, sort of disproportionately responsible for. And that at a time in space, in history where women are realizing, um, I actually don't need a man. It's not what, and obviously speaking heteronormatively in this case, but, um, it's not what it was where like survival depended on me being in partnership with a man. Um, there's not maybe the stigma of women being alone that there used to be. There's not like the for survival financially and um, protection need that there used to be for women to be with a man. And so if and when I am in partnership, I'm not going to continue to be in something that is just so depleting to me on a soul level, really. Um and I think what we're seeing more and more is just, I, I can't remember like the TikTok or something, but this woman was basically saying, why when I, when my uh, marriage ended, was I able to go back to school, get my doctorate, raise my three kids um, all by myself and still get all of this stuff done? And it's because in addition to all of the things that I need to do on my plate every day, what I didn't have was a partnership quote that felt out of proportion in terms of what our responsibilities were and what was needed of me. All of a sudden I had me time that I didn't have when I had a partner. And I think there's just such, you know, what I hear so much women express is that their partner a lot of times feels like another child to them. I don't think the, the way our society structures the idea of partnership is um, is really conducive to what feels like love to women, meaning that, you know, we talk about this a lot, that all of the relationship models that we were sort of raised with in terms of like couples work, and this is the, <laughs> the tough, difficult truth here, folks, um, basically were all designed by white, cis, hetero men. And the two relational models that are, you know, people speaking to relationship models that make the most sense to me and I've most resonated with are um, Esther Burrell, obviously, who we talk about a lot. Um, but I can't remember the other woman's name right now and I don't have it written down, but she's a woman who like her work is all based on like differentiation. We'll put it in the show notes. Put her in the show notes because she's brilliant. But and I was like, God, it's fascinating that the two people that are talking about relational work in a way that makes sense to me are women. And what they are saying is very much in alignment with, it is not our job to parent one another. It is our job to understand. So regardless of the relational model, what everyone is sort of in agreement with is that what we need is human animals, whether it's Gabor Mate talking about this or Imago therapy, the Gottman's work, sort of across the board. Everyone is in agreement that we all need a sense of safety, security, attachment, but we also need aliveness, life force, um, you know, expansion, authenticity. And those things are the feminine. So a patriarchal society puts the emphasis on the masculine, the structure, the safety, the containment of the relationship. They'll say, yeah, you guys need some like aliveness, but you know, go on a date night. And they literally very much like sort of dismissively 
don't really get into the autonomy, the um, authentic self aspect of that, because that is the feminine. And we are really conditioned to hold that with, you know, contempt and that it's like silly. It's not super necessary. But what it is doing, not just to women, to all of us, is it is draining life force. And what that looks like is for men, their life force is drained in that they haven't been in the space of authenticity and nurturing their feminine. So they go to the women in their lives or the people in their lives, because as we've talked about, it like shows up in their kids, like being where they get life force as well. And it's like one of our friends was talking about like harvesting energy. And I love it because that's what I've started to understand. It's like an energy exchange where we're taking from one another. And so that's why it feels like to women a lot of times, I don't have anything left to give because I'm giving my energy to everyone and I don't have any reserves left, right? And so if we don't have that balance of the feminine and of the autonomy, of the life force, of the eros, of the aliveness, our relationships are too far on the pendulum of structure and safety and security, which makes sense from a patriarchal standpoint. But what we are evolving into is if I don't have the aliveness, if I don't have enough of me here, then this is not sustainable. And that's from my perspective where people are really missing what interdependence means. I see so many of the clinical perspectives on interdependence still being basically just codependency with like lipstick on it. It's the same thing, but I'm curious to hear what you think. So I'm going to, I'm going to bring a little bit of a personal question here because I think this will help, but um, I preemptively apologize to John because I'm going to get a little personal. Uh, So what's interesting about this is that one of the conversations that John and I have had, and I'm sure anyone listening who has kids has probably had in their dynamic, um, if you're partnered, is since having children, right, it does become all about, like, the day-to-day. Gotta do this. Gotta get that done. Did you pick her up here? Is the laundry done? Like, it just becomes so structure-oriented, you know, structure-oriented, like, checklist, like, survival, right? It does become very masculine, right? Parenting in and of itself is a very masculine endeavor because you are attempting to keep this being alive, and that takes a lot of left-brain thinking you know, critical thinking, like all these things. And we've had this conversation a bunch where it's like, it's unfortunate that that feels like that has happened. It's the reality of parenting. How do we bring back or realive in essentially some of the feminine, right? So some of the spontaneity, some of the, again, eros, some of the um, passion, the desire, the, the excitement, right. That by nature is just not going to be stoked when you're 24 seven, your brain is just in this process of like, are there, is the laundry done? Are there dishes in the sink? Right. And what's funny is I'm sitting here thinking the number of times that John, my partner has actually been the one to voice that and express that. And on my side, I have sat and thought, like, in response to that, and I don't even know if I've actually said this or if this is just what's going through my mind when I'm, when I'm being told this, like, oh, I wish we had more of that, is number one, internally I get very defensive. Like, who has the fucking time for that? Because there's just so much to do with parenting. I'm so tired. <laughs> who has the time for romance and excitement when I'm fucking exhausted? But also there's this feeling of... Something about safety resonates for me. And I'm curious to know kind of what your thoughts are and the way that you put things into like the perspective of the polarities. But like, like it almost doesn't feel safe enough to allow myself, which then I guess also means my family, myself to be playful and not in the space of survival. And I don't, I don't know, I don't know what's coming up around that, but there's something about in those moments, me feeling like, well, yeah, that would be nice, but like, who has the time for that? How is that shit going to get done? How's going to, and to me, there's something about safety in that. Like, it almost feels like my internal system is saying, like, I don't feel safe enough to drop into that because I don't feel like it'll get done or somebody else will help or I don't know. I don't know what's going on with that. 
So here's what I've come to understand that's about. If we put women in a position, which our society has, where they are constantly in the role of their masculine. And as you spoke to, not only is parenthood an extremely masculine role, but motherhood is an extremely masculine role because you are very task, you are very contained, you are very keep safe, right? And alive. And so, you know, there's all these ways that society has sort of reinforced a woman should be in, in a masculine role all the time. And even when we are in the space of sort of like containing our husband's needs, like there's all these ways that like, you know, society will talk about like, basically like your, your husband goes from his mother to you and then you start mothering him is sort of like the narrative without it like being spoken, but like make his meals and take care of your man. And like, you know, like, and listen, it's not that those things are necessarily bad, but there's not a lot of feminine energy in that. There's not a lot of being witnessed. There's not a lot of play. There's not a lot of like, free flowing energy in that it's very much in the task, get it done. Like how sexy do you feel when you're cooking? Not super. Right. And it's not like all of these things, like we need integration. We need both. We need the masculine and the feminine. But the point is that we've gotten so out of alignment and women, because there's such a disproportionate amount of these, what are really masculine tasks put on us, structure, handle what's going on with the school, handle the play dates, handle when they need this birthday present, whatever it is. We're so in our masculine all the time with the masculine have masculine. And again, it's hard because these dynamics are alive in same sex couples as well. As well. It's just one person is probably the more core masculine. But if I'm so in my masculine all the time with him having no aware awareness of these masculine tasks, I don't feel safe. It's the reason that as women, we will take over and handle things. If I don't feel safe that you will do things, I will do them, right? Whatever the thing is. I'm trying to think of like another example other than like housework, but like sometimes like a woman will say to me, um, I want like floodlights on the house because I feel really unsafe. And her husband will say something like, that's not necessary. And then like the house will get broken into, right? He's not, or he'll be like, it's not that big of a deal. We live in a safe neighborhood. Or even if nothing ever happens, not seeing her fear makes her feel unsafe. And so she will take over. I'll handle it. I'll do this. I have a family. I have kids. I'll make us safe, right? That's the role she's then put in, which is the task, which is the handle it, which is the masculine, which makes me in that role. And I don't feel safe with you. I don't feel contained by you. I don't feel like you're holding me in my feminine because my feminine is my emotion. My, like you're telling me my, my emotion is irrational, which PS society has done to women forever. And we were just talking about this earlier. There's all these ways that when we're overwhelmed, when we're at our capacity and we finally snap, we're, we're crazy. Right. And it's like, are we, are we crazy? Or is just everything that is put on women's shoulders by society impossible standards of what we should be able to hold? And no, I don't feel safe when everything has been put on me. And so the long answer to your question from my perspective is, you know, I think there were so many ways I couldn't see this until I wasn't partnered anymore. And it was like a divide and conquer situation. And listen, I'm extremely fortunate in that my kid's dad is very comfortable stepping into his feminine and his masculine. So he balances that well, but it gives me space to come back into my feminine. And all of a sudden, when I had the space and the room, I was like, oh, I remember what it feels like to be me in this way. And yes, when I'm mothering, I am in my masculine. But when I'm not, I have the space to be in my feminine. And I think if we divide and conquer these tasks a little bit more, then we as women do have a little bit more room to be both. But right now, like notice how often do men struggle with like making me time and going to the gym or like they have no problem with their play. They have no problem like dropping into like their feminine when they need to. But that's because they don't have like the never ending list of masculine tasks circulating in their head that they are responsible for. You know what I mean? And, you know, I, I'm constantly kind of beating myself up and going, part of my work is speaking up. Part of my work is articulating it. Part of my work is like, I have to ask for help. Like I can't just keep doing it and not asking and not asking. And that is true. And there is something to be said for being seen. And I have been attempting to articulate this 
Jesus, probably my entire life. But in this dynamic where I have said, like, I'm not, I'm not wanting a mind reader. And I'm also starting to realize like so often, you know, these conversations around needs that I've had with couples or even individual clients over the years where it's like, you can't expect somebody to be a mind reader. Like if something bothers you or if something, whatever, like you have to speak up. And again, that is true. And there is something about being seen where your partner is present enough in the moment to say, you know what? You've been doing X, Y, and Z. You must be really tired. Let me go get you lunch or let me handle that. Or you don't, you don't even have to ask for it because I'm so there and I'm so present that I'm tuned in to what you quote unquote need. That is what I hear expressed so often by people of like, I just want them to know. And so it's such a tricky, it's such a tricky dynamic because it's like, you don't want, you're not a child, right? And you don't, what that a little bit does is feel a little bit like I'm putting the parental role on my partner. Like I want you to know what I need and for you to just do it right without me having to ask for it. And so we don't want that, but the balance between that and do you see me? Do you see that I'm handling all of these things right now? And I am on the verge of fucking losing my shit. And the fact is like, if you truly saw me, I might not actually have to lose my shit because you might say, whoa, I can tell you're like, you're doing a lot right now. Like, let me take the kid and go do X, Y, and Z, or let me step in and do something. And so I'm talking this out. It it almost like doesn't make sense as I'm saying it because it's like, I'm contradicting myself. It's like, what is the balance? What is the line between I need to speak up and say to you, I'm at a level five right now. And if I don't get help, I'm going to be at a 10 and then shit's going to hit the fan versus you being present enough and seeing me enough to go, whoa, I can tell you're at a five. I should step in or I should back off or whatever the thing is. So you don't get to a 10. Well, what I feel like you're speaking to is my basic problem with the premise of most of the relational models, which is how to get your partner to a place where they see you, right? Like how to get to a place where this person meets your needs. And what I would say is that's your job. Your job is to say for myself, I got to insist upon myself. I got to say, both of us live here. Both of us, if there were no me, you would figure out how to take out the trash and empty the dishwasher. So what we need to do is sit down together and figure out how we're going to um, divide and conquer. But, you know, what I think the trouble is, and listen, in a perfect world, yes, but I, I think a lot of times the struggle is we chose this person with them not doing some of the things that we need or that we feel like are the needs that we have, right? Like someone who's not seeing you in the ways that you're, you know, you're describing and that we all feel, I guarantee you this didn't start after you had children. These are things that we as women... I know the examples actually of when it happened before. (laughs) Right. Like we felt all along, we just pushed it down because, and here's the other thing I've come to understand, men structurally want women never to change. That's the masculine, right? We as women are constantly looking for potential in men, right? So it's like, he will get there. I will pull him by the ear and get him where I need to be because we as the feminine see things through the lens of expansion. We see possibility. We see where things can grow. Men see things through the like, it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like the structure is what it is. And so they want the woman that they first met and this was good enough for you when you were pretending that it was good enough for you when we first met. But we're like, well, he's not there now, but he's basically a good guy. So um, he'll get there eventually one day, I hope. But that's not what happens, right? And so the point is, I think, yes, I can have the desire for someone to anticipate my needs until I'm blue in the face. But two things. One, that is a very childhood wound stance. We wish that our parents saw us and met our needs in the way that we desired. And so most of us are continuing that wound. We're perpetuating that wound in our adult relationships. If this person that doesn't see me will just see me, then I will feel like I'm, I'm enough. You know, then I will feel worthy of being seen. It is our work to see ourselves and say, I'm not wrong for needing what I need. I'm not wrong for feeling like it's just as much my partner's responsibility as it is mine to do all of the, the tasks. I see me and I see we're going to figure this out or 
or we're not going to be partnership in a partnership. Right. But the other aspect is when I say, I just wish this person would see me, that's a very powerless stance to take. And we take our power back by saying, if that never changes and they never see me, what am I going to do? Because I think so many of us get stuck for years of our lives in this powerless stance of, I will exhale when this person can see what I am dying to get them to see. And a lot of times people don't see things until we say I'm fed up and I can't do this anymore. Do you know what I mean? Unfortunately, that's the human nature thing. We, we don't get there until we have no option to get there. It's that like we don't understand or change until we're at a bottom. But I have yet to see someone change in their lives in a really substantial way because it came from someone else nagging them into submission. I believe change always comes from some sort of authentic desire within us to change. Otherwise, we're just banging our head against a wall forever, you know? So I'm struggling with like the next point here, but like part of what we were talking about is, you know, okay, so if I say, I, I said earlier, like the zero to five, five to 10, and I use this like zero to 10 scale a lot in like, at least for me, like the overwhelm, you know, the freak out, the feeling of like, oh my God, fuck it. I can't do this anymore. And I've always been somebody who has like a pretty sensitive system. Um, and I was raised also by a mother who was very similar, like zero to 60, like the drop of a hat. Right. Um, I always say that like my mom has one level and it's like, it doesn't matter if like she breaks a nail or somebody dies, it's all those same level of freak out. Um, and so I've, I've, struggled a lot in my life to kind of like do a lot of the mindfulness work and do a lot of the, you know, the, the nervous system regulation work that I, I don't think I was really taught growing up, but I struggle with it. I still do. And I probably will forever. My point in saying all this is even at this point in time, even after all this work that I've done, I find, and listen, I'm giving myself grace. I know that it's never going to be perfect. I'm not asking for perfection, but you know, I find that I have a really hard time even knowing when I'm at that zero to five level, which like going back to what you were saying is like this idea of asking for my needs to not asking for my needs to get met, but like speaking up and doing for myself. Right. So if we were to say it's my responsibility where I'm feeling overwhelmed, it's my responsibility to step in and say, okay, I got to do something. I got to change this. Whatever that looks like, I got to take a break. I got to go in the other room. I got to like leave the kid with dad for a while, take a walk, whatever. And that that ability, cognitive ability happens between a zero and five, because once I get to an eight, there's no amount of rational thinking like that's fucking gone. Right. My cortex is dark. I am full limbic system. I am freak out, meltdown, overwhelm. Everybody fucking leave me alone, crying the whole nine. Right. Screaming, whatever it looks like for, you know, it's different for everybody. So in order to do that thing, I've got to be able to know my system well enough to know when I'm between a zero and five. And that is really hard. It's hard for me. And I've been doing this work for 15 years, right? We teach not just women, we teach everybody to not pay attention to their internal systems, right? We pay, we teach everybody to pay attention to the external more than the internal. It's why we all struggle with intuition. It's why we all struggle with what is my gut telling me? Why do I need an external validation source, right? Like, why can't I validate myself? So if you've got me sitting here saying, I've been doing mindfulness work and internal moderation work for 15 years, and I am still struggling to know when I'm at a zero to five, like, what is that? What is that fucking solution today? Because like, I would really like to know when I'm at a zero to five, when I'm at a two or a three and I can go, well, I got to change something. I got to step up and say something, do something different, interrupt this because once I hit five, it's a slippery slope to 10 and I am struggling to find that two and three. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know when it happens. I don't, I really don't. You know, I think to me, it's twofold. There's there's a way that even still in the language that you were just using and I like, I'm hearing it as you're talking and I do the same thing. We have still been so conditioned to shame ourselves for our feminine, which is our emotion, which is our overwhelm, which is our, um, our, our basically our, like what you're saying, our intuition telling us you are, you're doing too much. Right. 
Um, that is, that is what those responses are. I would not say that I, I don't remember how you said it, but you're not someone who like, I think you said like easily goes into that or something. I would say, are you, or is the way that our societal structure is set up one where you are just doing too much 95% of the time, right? Like I do think that that is the case. And I think some of this is offensively, we need to not wait until we get to the point where conceivably I could be near an eight, which is I sort of got to like put up structures in place that protect my nervous system beforehand. Meaning, um, I hope it's okay that I give this example, but like you just went out of town right before we're like doing a retreat where we're going to be holding space for people for a week. And I remember saying to you before you left, I was like, you do the most. Like if that were me, I would be like, nope, can't do that because right before a retreat, um, I'm, I'm going to be overwhelmed right now. Listen, one, I think there are ways that some of my work has been, and we talk about this because I'm so introverted. I have really had to learn how to protect my energy and, and make people sometimes either uncomfortable or not like me. Or like my fear is like, people think I'm like weird or like not nice because I'm like, like, you know, like I won't share a room with someone because I get like really depleted energetically and I need to go like be alone. And I know that about me on a nervous system level. And, you know, I, I like talk to my kid about this. I'm like, you know what, bud, I need you to go with dad right now because mom's going to need her Saturday because if I don't have some alone time, um, I'm going to get overwhelmed. And I think we as women have to get better about one, not shaming ourselves when our, our very intelligent, bodies have like a moment of like, you're at a 10. And listen, I still do this. I, God, I don't remember what was happening a couple of weeks ago, but I was like sobbing uncontrollably, so emotional. And I was like, Danae, suck it up. Nothing is wrong. And I was like, look at the way you talk to yourself. Like, look at the way you shame your feminine. Like you are emotional. You are feeling something like you are lonely, whatever the like, you know, emotions that I'm feeling in this moment, I make myself wrong for them because that's what I've been trained to do, right? Like you don't get to feel feelings. That makes you too much. And I think it's really one, we got to like pay attention to the way we shame ourselves for feeling feelings that bring us home to ourselves, but also preemptively sort of that like offensive taking care of ourselves and saying, it's not like whether or not I can do something. It's I got to put structures in place that protect me so I won't on the other side of doing that thing feel depleted because we will keep like every part of what we're trained to do is to keep going until we're at a 10. But I got to put the structures in place ahead of time so that I don't have to like, you know, yeah, there are going to be times when I'm there and I'm, and I'm at a 10 and I forgive me when I am is the practice. But also, how do I, before I'm in that space where it could conceivably happen, take care of me um, offensively? Does that make sense? The kind of light bulb that just went off when you were talking is I've been grasping at attempting to find the two or the three so that I can self-soothe before I get to a 10. And what I think I'm realizing is that I'm just existing at a five all the time. So it's, it's actually an impossible feat for me and all of the work I've been doing for my entire fucking adult life of like attempting to find what I'm at this like lower, you know, registration on that barometer is actually a futile effort. Cause I think that with the people pleasing, with the overdoing, with the needing everybody to be okay all the time with all of this bullshit that I carry around. And I know so many do, I think I walk around at a five all the fucking time. And so it's actually, it's actually not that I'm going from like a two to a 10 or a zero to a 10, which to me is like, there's like, you're right. There's almost like shame in that or like there's something wrong in that. It's actually that I'm, I'm just at a five constantly. And so I go from a five to a 10 and going from a five to 10 is actually not all that big of a jump. <laughs> it's definitely not as big of a jump as going from a zero to a 10. And, and so, so much of this becomes like, I guess it's, first of all, I don't even know if I know what a zero feels like, right? Like, I think I had this conversation a long time ago. Um, one of our friends and coworkers, shout out MC McDonald, um, 
master trauma woman. Um, she knows all the things about trauma. We had a conversation a long time ago about like people being addicted to their trauma, right? Which was actually a conversation we had recently with Danielle Laporte on the podcast. Um, but addicted to it in a nervous system way, right? So like when your nervous system becomes so acclimated to existing at a five, right? It feels unsafe to exist at a four, three, two, one, zero, right? Because your nervous system is like, whoa, whoa, whoa. Like, I don't know what that is. So I don't have control. I don't have the foresight. I can't protect you. Like that feels foreign. That doesn't feel safe. So I actually will be on some kind of heightened alert at all time, making my nervous system exist at a five, because that is what my, my regulative state feels right. Or my, or my kind of base level feels like, and I was talking about it actually about somebody else. But the funny thing is, is realizing that like, that is pretty much exactly what I do to myself as well. Right. And again, it's not conscious, like none of this stuff is conscious, but so much of, if you grow up in a, in an environment where, and I, I would actually argue that this is the environment, right? Like it's not even just the households that we grow up in. It's the society that we live in. And I would say this actually isn't even a woman thing. I think this is an all of us thing. Like when you are raised in an environment that keeps you at a level five constantly. It keeps you out of your body and in your head and out of your feminine. That is what we are raised as, you know, societally to do is to be disconnected from ourselves and our needs. Right. You're at a five. Like you're just constantly existing at this low level hum and so, you know, we have this like explosive, listen, we as a society have a problem with explosions, right? I mean, we are the most, when it comes to like gun violence and just all of these things, like we have this problem, especially in men actually, of, of this explosion of anger, of this unhealthy, unprocessed feeling, right? Felt sense because there's no integration. There's no, yeah, of the feminine. And so anyway, I mean, that was like a whole long tangent, but it's just like, uh, when you realize that you're just walking around all the time at a fucking five, like, first of all, it's, it's not as much shame to say, shit, I'm going from a five to a 10 than it is to say I went from a zero to a 10, because I don't think I fucking started at a zero. I think I just live at a five all the time. And so then, you know, no pressure. What's the fucking, like, how do I get to a zero? Or if, I mean, maybe a zero, zero is not realistic, but like, how do I get to a four? A four would be nice. Jesus. I don't even know what a four feels like. So then it's less about like, how do I regulate my five? And it becomes like, what can I do to myself in my life, in my, in my relationships, in my world? Is it even possible to live at a four? Like, I don't know. Is it? Absolutely. It is. And, but what it requires is a complete reimagining from my perspective of the way we are doing life, right? So it becomes, we sit down, you know, if we're in partnerships and we say, like, we've got to restructure this so that we are not like getting through life, but we are living life because so many of us and so much of what our society has taught us is life is something that we get through versus something that we actually are living and are present for and enjoying and thriving in. And it just does not need to be this way. You know, I think just like I was saying, like, you know, you're doing the most, like, I think that is like societally what we do. Like our children need to be in the most activities and we need to go to the most social engagements. And if I'm going to be a mom, I need to be the most amazing mom in a way that like rectifies all the things that I thought I didn't get in my childhood that maybe we didn't. But I also think there was a lot more space for like, go out in the backyard and play. I'm not going to sit here and do activities with you all day, every day on top of the never ending to do list of things that I have to do. I think we have just decided societally that all of us should be. And I would say not a five, I would say higher than a five. Like maybe a seven is like the baseline for us on a societal level. And we got to stop saying this isn't live or we got to start saying, excuse me, this isn't living. We're not going to live this way. Like, it's okay to say no. And I think it's like, we got to start within us. Um, I got to own my no. No is a complete sentence because I don't want to is enough. And, and sit with myself, love myself through the wave of emotions that come up after that. Right. Yes. Those people are maybe going to feel some kind of way about, um, me not going to the social engagement or whatever the thing is. I'll tell you guys, it's a muscle you build. 
to me and the point where you like, I could care less. I'm the worst. But I think that that is the muscle that we are working to build is like, I am enough right now. Like, I don't need to be all of these things for all of these people in order to be worthy. And that's ultimately what we're talking about. That is why we are like tap dancing for our our safety in these partnerships is because we feel like I am not enough, just me here. If I say no to you, will you still love me? Not just our partners, but people, everybody, our children. Exactly. If I say no, will I be enough? Or will me and my big emotions that I'm feeling be too much, right? Um, It's that too much, not enough shame thing that we all hold, but it's like, I got to validate for me. Of course you are enough. Of course, you're not too much. And you are worthy just here sitting in this space of doing nothing. I believe on a societal level, it is the transition we are coming into from the masculine paradigm to the integrated paradigm. Because it's not that we're just like shifting into a feminine paradigm where it's all willy nilly and there's no structure to anything. It's we are integrating and the integrating is like way less, guys. We got to do way less. Everybody, everybody. And I think literally that was what, whatever you want to call it, mother nature, um, the government, like whatever the powers that be that brought in this year, these last couple of years of like slowdown, we're like, y'all are doing too much enough. You're on, you're on timeout enough. And it's like, are we going to get the lesson? Are we going to go right back to like productivity mode? Got to keep going. Got to keep going. Like, I believe we completely miss what all of that came to teach us. If we still keep saying we got to be this hustle culture, we got to keep going. We got to be everything to everyone. That is not our work. Our work is to say, I got to be for myself first, or I am no good to any of you because it's not actually me. As you were saying, it's me in this, um, how do you talk about it? It's me in that part of my brain that is in like the reactionary mode, the limbic system survival brain, the reptilian brain, right? Right. And that's not actually me here for you. That's not actually me being any good. It's not my higher self is what it is. I don't want to say it's my lowest self because that makes it almost like it it, it minimizes it, but it's, yeah, well, it's, it's your survival, right? At its absolute core. Right. Which we will do to save ourselves when we put our, it's that stress response, right? That is the trauma response we will do what we have to do to survive, which is I will feel like I'm freaking out and I will be anxious or I will be irritated or I will be resentful or all of these things that we end up feeling when we keep suppressing our need to be a self. Um, our work is to say, no, like I, I'm not going to do that anymore. I can't be everything to everyone, nor do I actually have any interest in that because I want to enjoy this life that I have, you know, I'm tired. <laughs> so tired. like big picture, but also right now I'm so tired. My head hurts. It's a lot. (sighs) Well, thank you for listening to our ramblings, our musings. These are the kind of conversations that we genuinely have. (laughs) We don't just do this for the podcast. (laughs) Um, And we'll let you all know how the retreat goes and look out. There'll be some special announcements coming for the rest of 2023, we've got a couple more that we're planning. Um, there's some new exciting stuff that we're working on together. So yeah, just keep listening. Um, if you're not on my email list already, make sure you sign up for that too. Cause that's usually where, you know, with the algorithms on social media, you'll never, you'll never know. So, um, if you go to my website, vanessabetta.com and sign up for my email there, um, I'm going to get better at making sure that I always, always, always send the announcements there because I can't, can't trust Meta. <laughs> Wait, Meta, don't don't blacklist me. <laughs> we can't trust the algorithm. I'm sorry. Anyway, all right, y'all. We hope you um, have a lovely day, and thank you for listening. Bye, y'all. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Cheaper Than Therapy. If you enjoyed today's episode, be sure to share it with a friend, subscribe, and give us a five star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you want to connect with us more, find us on Instagram at Cheaper Than Therapy, the podcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. 
Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com